With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host along with Ronaldo Brudico for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. Ronaldo Brudico is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a wealth advisor and estate planning consultant with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering two major topics, along with our lightning round. As always, we include questions and comments from you, our audience. We already have several questions in the queue that we've received by email, so if you'd like to, excuse me, if you'd like to place a question, you can dial into us at area code 347-989-8946, and if you simply press number one on your keypad after you're called in, I will see a little hand that shows up on my screen and will know that you've got a question waiting in the queue. Again, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present to you, our members and listeners, we want to present you with concrete, actionable ideas. Today we'll be discussing, one, how to decide when and where to reenter the market to profit from the growing economic recovery while avoiding bubbles and other trouble spots, and two, how pending proposals for financial reform will affect Wall Street, individual investors, and institutional investors such as pension funds. After the first segment, we will do our expanded lightning round, a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes such as bonds, the dollar, energy, and real estate, with particular emphasis on ideas that you can use yourself. Ronaldo, with that, let's turn it over to you. And I think, as you mentioned earlier today when we were speaking, you're going to talk a little bit about what happened last week with uh, the Greek financial crisis and the huge volatility that we saw in the markets. Thank you, Howard. Yes, and uh, hello to everyone back uh, with us again this month. It's wonderful to be able to do these. It's uh, one of the benefits that you don't realize that I get from this is uh, knowing this day is coming. I kind of like dust up a few of my dust off a few of my um, pieces of uh, information that are lying around on my desk for future use, and I trot them out. But this week, uh, there's no dusting. It's it was sitting there like a 2,000 pound elephant on my desk. This whole thing with the Greek crisis and the 1,000 point plunge. Let me dispense with it really quickly, and I'm going to urge people to give us a call with a question or send us an email that we can respond to because it, this is this is this could be easily an entire hour, and I don't want to take people's time doing that. Short version is this: When I first heard the fat fingered uh, excuse for why this, the markets crashed. I knew that was totally false, as it will turn out to be in, in hindsight. That's insane. No, no, no single broker, no matter whether they're ty- typing 16 billion or 16 million in any one location in the world, otherwise c- can affect that the crash that we saw. My personal belief, by the way, is I think we were hacked. I think that that was a test run. Uh, I think that the people who did clearly the people in China who hacked to Google source code are more than capable of hacking the the New York Stock Exchange. I note that just uh, two days ago, uh, the government released some information that shows an enormous volume of trading data hit 
spontaneously, and that triggered additional computerized program trading. And what brought it under control was when the New York Stock Exchange was severed from other electronic exchanges, and they stopped honoring New York Stock Exchange data, and the data dropped off precipitously. So it looks to me like the New York Stock Exchange got hit with a, sw- a data swarm. Why, I don't know. Alter, let me just interrupt for one quick second. For those people who are listening who don't know what program trading is, could you maybe give a little quick definition of that and how that happens? Oh, uh, sure, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Program trading is – we've entered an era where, frankly, and regulation, when you hear financial reform regulation that's pending, that's not pending on this topic yet and should be. Program trading means high, high, high velocity computers that talk to each other in, in milliseconds and make trades based on formula that are put in them relative to volatility and tracking data on the price performance of individual shares. So when, you, when a program trading computer picks up a, a slide happening, it starts putting in stop trade orders, it, stops selling into, it starts selling into it, and that can cause a dramatic acceleration as it did uh, with the New York Stock Exchange um, was it, last week. Now, that, that's an area that needs to be investigated for two reasons. One, there should be a human somewhere, and I believe it should be in the, in, at least in the United States government, and I would urge Claude Trichet to have a similar power in Europe. There needs to be somebody who can say, stop all trades on all exchanges, freeze, until a human can look at what's happening. If there was such a stop button, and think about it, we, we put those on railroads back in the 1850s, so why we wouldn't have one on a mechanism that creates trillions of dollars of wealth or destroys it in a matter of moments, um, why wouldn't we have such a safety, uh, you know, safety device on the, on the market? But, but what I wanted to say was the, the Greek crisis gave the opportunity, the backdrop for, for fear about that event to set in, but the two are t- t- completely unrelated. The Greek crisis is about a fundamental structural flaw and I've been saying this now for at least uh, a month or so privately, and, and I'm glad to have this chance to say it publicly, the structural flaw in the euro is simply this. A country can choose to be in political union with the European community. For example, Britain is in political union with the European community. Britain does not, however, use the euro, so it's not in monetary union. It uses the British pound. So the British pound has been affected by other things, but not really by the collapse of the euro last week. The euro has a problem in that you can go. So if the Brits wanted to go into European Monetary Union, there is a way for them to get elected in. However, there is no way currently on the books anywhere for a country that's in to go out. And that's got to happen. In other words, there's got to be a way that the European Union can say to a monetary union uh, affiliate like Greece, or for that matter, Italy, or Spain or Portugal, although I think Greece is the real issue here, and say, look, you know what, if you don't want to collect 75% of your taxes, which the Greeks don't, if you don't want to have a rational welfare system, which the Greeks don't, if you want to have 25% of all the people in the country work directly for the Greek government, if you want to be able to retire people at the age of 50 on full pensions, we, the European Union, can't pay for that with euros because it will cause an inflationary pressure on the euro, which would hit us euro-wide. And since you constantly miss your inflation targets and you constantly miss your your, uh, gross domestic product relative to debt issuance targets, we are going to say to you, you got 24 months to either fix the problem, Greece, or you're going to have to leave the euro. So at the end of 12 months, if they haven't fixed the problem, the clock starts ticking, and 12 months after that, Greece starts printing drachma. Now, this sounds draconian, but frankly, is 
I think, the only ultimate solution for the, for the European Union. Without that ability to control the treasury function of each country, i.e. how money comes into a country's treasury, without that ability, supplying endless liquidity is, is, is a prescription for unlimited inflation. And frankly, can't work, won't work, and isn't going to work. So the Europeans have got to stare this one in the eye and say, you know what, we made a mistake in this European monetary union thing. We've got to have a mechanism by which somebody can be dropped up. Does that mean there'll be a devaluation of the drachma? Sure, of course there will be as they drop off the euro. But that's okay because it'll give the Greeks an opportunity to rebuild their economy at an appropriate level. Because if the drachma is cheaper, then Greek exports will be cheaper. And because they're in the political union with Europe, they'll be able to ship them across European boundaries. And eventually the Greek economy will resettle and rebuild itself at whatever is the appropriate level. The European Union, having been freed from the economic drain of that, will probably be due, I would guess, at least a couple of points in, in GDP growth for the whole European society, all of Europe, uh, just by that one move. So till they do it, we're going to see some uh, slowing. I'd say at least a point and a half of growth is going to get chopped off the European recovery in the foreseeable future, meaning the next 12 months, which is what I'm interested in, is the next 12 months. And watch carefully to see if the Europeans deal with this structural underlying fundamental reality. Having said that, the American economy and the American recovery will continue. It will, it will pick up some additional steam between now and November. You will see additional large months of new hiring. Uh, you'll see additional uh, growth in the GDP in the United States. Uh, again, I think you're going to lose a little bit of that growth because the European markets are going to be slowing by at least a point and a half, point, point and a half. So it'll tend to put a little downward pressure on the U.S. economy, but not enough to affect what the U.S. will do, what China will do, what India will do in the next foreseeable 12 months. So that's a quick, just a quick uh, statement of that. And if people want us to come back to it, we can, because I know we mentioned it as a topic for this week. But I'm kind of thinking that that's enough of an overview unless there's a specific question, Howard. Okay. Well, Is that good? You, you, you wanted to go into it more? No, I think that's a good start. And, again, if people do have a question about this, please feel free to uh, hit that number one on your phone pad and uh, let us know. We'll ask uh, have you respond. Um, so let's move on to our first topic, which, again, is how to decide when and where to reenter the market to profit from the growing economic recovery while avoiding bubbles and other trouble spots. Ronaldo, back to you with that. Well, you know, I think, first of all, there's an uh, interesting um, um, contrary opinion. I want to state what the contrary opinion is. The contrary opinion says that the stock market's recovered so well since February, March of this year that now's a good time to sell because what you lost last year, if you still own it, of course a lot of people don't still own it because they had uh, they had leverage, and when you get leverage or you buy on margin, uh, your broker takes your stock as it keeps dropping in order to pay off your margin loan. So a lot of people might not still own the stock they own when the crash began in 08. However, if you own the stock, some some uh, people are saying, gee, now's a good time to get out, take your money. And of course, now the question then becomes, where do you put your money? And, and why is that important? Well, I, I like to direct these comments to people, uh, you know, I, I'm not doing this for the benefit of large captains of industry. So I'm trying to do this, this show for the benefit of normal, average, everyday people like you and me, are people who have got an IRA, or people who are saving for their children's college education, or people who have enough savings that they're hoping to retire on it one day. So I'm interested in people's preservation of capital and of a modest but relatively safe growth in that capital. So I'm not a risk taker, as you know, but I do believe you have to work your money or your money works you. And what we're coming into now is a period of increasing inflation. 
you're going to see it. And by the way, all the stuff I just mentioned about the euro will tend to add to global inflation. What the U.S. has been doing will tend to add to global inflation. When the oil companies get around to realizing what's going to, what kind of a spanking they're going to take down there in the Gulf and probably post-November start raising oil prices again, you're going to find that there will be some inflation. So there's inflation coming, and my guess is, as we've always said, it'll be in the second half of this year. I expect to see the strain starting to show up by September, October, and after the November election, I believe, it'll, if not sooner, it'll definitely become something that we're aware of. And when I say inflation, I'm not talking about runaway, you know, double-digit. What I'm talking is a, you know, a relatively robust 5% or more inflation level. Now, what you need to know about that is when, you're, when inflation's running 3 to 5% or more, uh, if you don't make 3 to 5% or more on your money, you're losing money every day. So for those people who have it in a money market account, and, and the best one I know right now are some of the online accounts like Ing, uh, which I think is paying 1.5% or 1.3%. When, when you're getting 1.3% on your cash sitting in, in a depository and, and inflation is at 3 to 5%, that means you're losing you know, 2, 3, as much as 4% of your of your money every single day. So if you've got 100,000 in savings, you're going to lose 2 to 4,000 of it. If you've got 200,000 in savings, you're going to lose 4 to 8,000. And most people are trying to save up enough to retire, which means they're going to have at least a quarter million dollars or more if they're getting closer to retirement age. So I don't believe it's safe to sit on your hands, so to speak, and I look at the market in that context. So looking at the market, and by the way, some of you may recall we suggested gold as a possibility uh, I think it was two months ago now, uh, and then we saw that it was it had a, as much upside chance as downside. In fact, we saw a little more of the bias to the upside, and then it might go sideways. And as, it, as you know, it's gone up 22% since then. Do I recommend gold? Not necessarily, although I think it's an interesting inflation hedge. But I do think that that same pressure as an inflation hedge applies to stocks. So I believe that you can selectively own common stocks now. I prefer them to bonds because when inflation goes up, the price of bonds tends to go in opposite direction. So although you can get more interest in a bond, let's say you bought a um, California municipal paying, you know, 4 or 5%, 6%, it, it sounds good, except when you go to cash it in, if the price of the bond dropped by that or more each year, all of a sudden you made interest, but the bond is worth a lot less. So I'm not really in favor of bonds going into an inflationary period. I am in favor of selective common stocks. Now, some people, many of you who have listened to this or listened to me over the years know, I, I personally don't invest in oil company stocks for a lot of good reasons. Uh, I have to do with my philosophy, personal philosophy. But if, if, if you want to talk about oil stocks in the question, we'll talk about them and what their prospects are going forward. Because despite what's going to go on in the Gulf, and to which there's no solution as of today, the 13th of May, despite that, um, there will be a continuous upward pressure on oil prices, uh, and that could accelerate, actually, in 2011. So we can talk about what that means to oil companies. I will talk about, for example, an investment I made a couple of months ago, which I think I mentioned to some of you, where I bought a partnership participation in natural gas company lines, not the people who own the natural gas itself because that's at all-time low prices. And frankly, you don't want to own the gas itself. What you want to own is the method or piece of, you want, to, you want to make money when the gas goes to market because natural gas at these very cheap prices produces revenue to the pipeline owner. 
And typically these, these pipeline deals are set up as limited partnerships. So as the revenue goes up, it flows straight to you in the proportion of your ownership. So I, and I have, I've said for a while now, I like natural gas as, um, as an alternative to other fossil fuels. It has half the, half the CO2 as, as oil. So I think natural gas pipelines is a way to participate in, in the reviving economy. I also think, and some of you know I was saying this I don't know, three or four months ago, and I normally do not like to pick individual stocks. I only gave it as an example, but I will give it to you as an example again. There are certain large cap stocks like GE which I thought at 14 was a good buy. I think it's still probably a good buy at 16. I'm not sure where it is today. I don't track it that carefully. But why I like that is because it's reestablishing its goal to be a green company. It's chosen to retain its light bulb division, which is a domestic division, and where I think they can have significant upside growth as America starts just switching out all of its, which it will, America will be switching out its light bulbs and going to um, much more energy efficient ones and ultimately LEDs. So I think GE is doing it's, uh, GE is heavily invested in its, its uh, locomotive division, which it will probably be a beneficiary of the new burst and, and high-speed rail that will occur here in the United States. Uh, it's a big it's a big manufacturer of peaking generators that are jet engines basically that they sell for airlines, but that they can modify it to turn into a, a power plant where you turn it on with natural gas and turn it off only when you need it. So GE's positioned in a lot of the sectors where I think it could do very well, and I think it's got its big problem, which was GE capital out of the way. Plus, historically, GE's been a decent dividend company, which I assume it will restore its, 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 its posture there in the not-too-distant future. So you can selectively find a big-cap stock like that. Can you find other small-cap stocks? Absolutely. The, 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 there's many different ones that are available. And you can even find, and this is what I want people to recognize, you can go to places like the Calvert Group. You can go to the Dominie Investment Fund. And you can find funds that will invest in socially responsible uh, which I believe will do much better over the next 10, 20-year cycle because they'll be better prepared for climate change. They'll better be better prepared for the adjustments in the economy that are coming. They'll be better prepared for the reallocation of the wealth that's going to occur, hopefully in the next four years, back towards the middle class a little bit because we've got way out of whack with it being where the rich were getting rich for too long and the poor were getting poor and more people were getting poor every day. So there are these so-called CSR or uh, socially responsible investment funds Again, the Domini funds are good for this. The Calvert Group of funds are good for this. There are others that are good for this. And I believe what you will see is that there are ways that you could own through these funds selective investments that will ride the green sector curve. And I, and I really would urge you to get into the green sector. That's what's going to be really, really hot. In the next uh, 12 months, people are going to be continuing to look more and more at how companies in the green sector can can, can strengthen. Now, I don't like to recommend to people who are doing capital preservation – so I started these comments, and I'll end it with saying, if you're a normal person and you're saving 100000 or 200 or 250 for your children's college education or for your retirement or in your IRA, I want you to be very careful about the percentage of your, of your assets you put into high-risk green sector uh, opportunities. Uh, there are uh, private placements. There are early-stage investments that you can make. I know one of our, uh, one of our uh, uh, members, uh, Stuart Valentine, uh, his organization, Progressive Asset Management, specializes in those kind of things. Uh, you can do it, but keep it to a very small percentage of your portfolio. Why? Because you can earn significant interest. Uh, you can earn uh, in the form of dividends, or you can earn significant interest in the form of, of, of bonds. And by the way, I remember I told you Brazilian bonds, denominated Brazilian uh, reals, was a good investment. You could get them at 9 10 11%. Those were out there as recently as a month or so ago. I just did it again. 
and the reason I like those bonds and I don't like normal bonds, just to let you folks know, and that's still a good investment, is because those bonds will not tend to depreciate in the face of the inflation that the U.S. will go through because Brazil isn't going to experience that same inflation. So you're actually getting an inflation hedge when you're buying in reals. Professor, so, let me interrupt you for two quick seconds here, two quick things. Um, first, your comments presuppose that we are in an economic recovery, and I'd like you to – and I have a que- several questions that have come in about that – uh, which I'll try to rephrase in a second. And I do also want to mention to our listeners that next month we're going to do a kind of a special program on fundamental frameworks to thinking about investments. In other words, what percentage should you be doing long-term investments? What should be short-term? And how to think about all those aspects. And we'll have more details about that in the uh, newsletter that comes out between calls each month. But going back to the economy, there's several questions that have come in on email before this is, are we in an economic recovery? And what and is that really happening? Yeah, it, we're, it, I, I've been saying this now for months, and I, I, I hope people get this loud and clear. We are definitely in a recovery. There's no question that the GDP has been growing. Uh, job growth, I mean, just take job growth alone. And remember, they just re- recalculated the March and February job growth. It turns out it was even higher than they originally released. Uh, we, in the month of April, we saw 290,000 new jobs contrasted with January of 2009, where we lost 750,000 jobs. So you're talking about net. So you're talking about over a 1.1 million swing in job creation from January 2009 to April of this year. That, that's an enormous change of position. So yes, we're in a recovery. Yes, uh, things are stabilizing. We have lots of challenges still. Pockets of real estate are very, very dangerous still. Uh, I'm speaking of Las Vegas, certain parts of California. Um, there, are, there are a lot of problems associated at the level of the states where budgets continue to be slashed, where state employment, for example, just last month was continued to be cut. State and local employment was cut. It didn't go up. All these things are uh, relevant when we look at how the recovery is going to progress. So I continue to see, a, as we've said for 18 months now, a broad, slightly L-shaped, gradually rising recovery. I don't see a rapid hockey sticking up, which I think would be unwise. I do see that the, 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 the likelihood of inflation beginning to build up some momentum by uh, late second half of this year. Uh, so figure you'll see that you're already starting to see the beginning of it in June, July, but you'll start to see it in really appreciative ways in September, October, and certainly more so after the November elections. So I believe you're going to see a continuous strengthening recovery for the next 12 months. I think there are enormous danger signs post-12 months, and I've articulated that before, and if people want to know, I can explain why. So I'm very, very nervous about what might happen two and three years from now. But for the next 12 months, which is how we like to look out, 12 months ahead, this is a time for rising economic activity, rising corporate profits, rising GDP, rising employment, and rising economic activity generally, and that's not going to change in the foreseeable future unless something catastrophic happens, you know, like another 9-11 or something like that that's you know, outside of our ability to compute. Your comments remind me a little bit of what Franklin Delano Roosevelt said during the Depression and, and the entry into World War II, which is, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And that also seems to be what happened last week, just a panic that morphed into uh, an even greater panic that then, within a matter of days, the impact of that has actually disappeared. Uh, any thoughts on that? as it relates to the sense of recovery and the stock market itself recovering. You mean that, that, that famous quote, there's nothing to fear but fear itself? 
Yes. Like dissipate the panic and, and the problem goes away. Well, I think that that actually I think that story is apocryphal. Uh, I, I think that story is. Um, uh, first of all, if, if you look at what ended the Great Depression, it wasn't Roosevelt. I mean, he did a great job of bringing us to the edge of coming out of it. But what really ended the Depression was World War II. And there are many people who believe that to get through what we did, the Great Recession, to, to, to truly cure us from the Great Recession, will require something of that magnitude. And that's an interesting thing to, to think about, because when you think of the institutions of government that, that Roosevelt instituted so that we could not have this happen again, so the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the Securities and Exchange Commission, I mean, the whole gone for long of regulation, uh, the, the Works Progress Administration, the Civilian Conservation Corps. I mean, all these things that Roosevelt invented, Social Security, by the way, is the biggest one. All of these things were massive interventions in, in the way the economy had conducted itself up until then, and long overdue, as is quite clear, because after we got the economy righted, starting around 1945, um, and it started picking up you know huge momentum in 1936 from Lend-Lease, and then 39 with the entry of uh, the U.S. really going forward in 41 with Pearl Harbor. Well, when you look at those dates, you say, gee, those, all those reforms, which were huge, which were radically, radically huge for the day, um, carried us from 19, say, 40s to 2008. That's pretty darn good. Usually reforms don't work that long. And what you're looking at now is the need for a massive reform across the entire spectrum of the financial world. So we need, we need re-regulation. Uh, they call it the Volcker Amendment, the Volcker Approach. We need re-regulation so that banks can't take guaranteed deposits and gamble with them. Ronaldo, so let's, that's actually our second topic, so why don't we hold that off since it's time for our lightning round now, if that's all right. Sure. And, and uh, again, our lightning round, for those of you who might be new listeners, is a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes such as bonds, the dollar, energy, and real estate, with, a, again, a particular emphasis on ideas that you can actually use. And as a reminder, if you'd like to place a call, or a question, rather, uh, if you're already on the line, just simply hit the number one, and we will see your hand raised, so to speak, on our screen. And if you're not already on the phone lines, but going through your computer, you can also call in at 347 989-8946. Okay, Ronaldo, take it away. Yeah, I think that um, let's just start with gold. First of all, gold has gone up to 1,200 and change per troy ounce, and, and um, that means gold stocks are up as well because they own the gold still on the ground. And there are some really interesting plays in the gold mining world, particularly with um, there's one particular Canadian company I think does an exceptionally good job of getting gold out of the ground at a far less price than any of its competitors. But having said that, uh, the issue with gold is where it's, it's, uh, the fear uh, has kicked in and inflation has uh, inflation worries have kicked in, and that's what's keeping the price of gold up. Uh, I think it's also anticipating a higher price of oil, which will happen post-November, if not sooner, but certainly post-November. So, so the, the gold is acting in that fashion. And until the world settles its major problems, and I would consider the structural flaw in the euro we addressed earlier to be one of those major structural flaws, till that happens you're going to continue to see gold stay at these levels. Uh, some people think the next magic number for gold is 1,500, up from 1,200. Other people say, no, it could settle back down to 1,000 once it's clear that the Greek crisis has been resolved. Um, they, they plugged the hole with 35 billion. Then they put another a, a whole big chunk, went to 110 billion. And then, of course, at the end of last week, they put together a 760 billion 
fund, a European-wide fund for Portugal, Spain, Italy, and Greece, and they got the International Monetary Fund to say that they would take that number up to well over a trillion dollars, so 1.25, 1.3 trillion. Well, when you start pumping that kind of money through the system, that liquidity, and you don't have any way to change the underlying economic performance, you will get inflationary pressure. So until that gets resolved, I think you're going to see gold at these levels. If you own gold, I would hold it. I certainly wouldn't sell. If you haven't bought it yet, you know, um, you might want to put it in as a, a very small percentage of your portfolio, just as an emergency, uh, kind of an insurance policy almost against high inflation. I'm not buying gold this week. Uh, don't think I will be buying gold. I did buy some a while back a year ago, still have it continue to hold it, will like holding it, but I don't think that that's relevant. Let's talk about some other things. You're going to see some uh, the basic commodities, if you've noticed, have been going up, as we said they would in the last few months. We've been talking about this. Rising economic activity creates more and more pressure for basic uh, commodities that are used in construction, like uh, copper, for example. Uh, I started to mention earlier when I was saying that there's one potential weakness in the economy, which is yet to surface, and that is this whole issue about um, uh, commercial uh, commercial lending. I think there's a tremendous wave of problems yet to come with commercial paper uh, for commercial buildings. Uh, but but that was notwithstanding, China still needs to keep building. So when China says they're going to build a high-speed rail system that will, that will that will link all the major cities in China, serving 95% of the population, and they'll do it, they'll complete it by 2013. Hey, even if they're off by a year, you know what that means in terms of the labor force. You know how much steel that means, how much uh, cement that means. So if you look at Mittal, for example, which is the largest um, steel owner in the world, you'll notice the price of the stock has gone up. You'll also notice that about a little over a week ago, he's talking about price increases because the market is firmed. So you've got semi-oligopolist forces in the commodities business. They're licking their chops. This is the time they're going to make money. So I'm looking at basic construction uh, commodities going up. I think you're going to see continue upward pressure on food commodities for a whole bunch of reasons, some of them climate change related, some of them related to the fact that um, as the world gets larger and parts of it, China and India get richer, there'll be a demand for even more agricultural goods, and some of those agricultural goods may be harder to come by given the drought, the twisters in the Midwest, et cetera. Right. Um, any other? We have a question on this. Um, in terms of commodities, do you advocate buying individual companies, the actual entities on commodity exchanges, or using a tracking index? Yeah, I think it's a, that's a function of the sophistication of the – number two things, the sophistication of the investor. The more sophisticated you are, the safer it is for you to pick an individual company. And that's why I said earlier, I don't normally pick individual companies for this conversation. And the reason I've gone to GE a couple times is because I wanted to use it as an example of the kinds of characteristics I look for in stocks, in a specific equity stock. But I don't like to give out individual company names, and I don't like to do it as well with individual companies doing, uh, you know, I might tell you I like copper, but I don't want to tell you anything about Anaconda, as an example. So the point of it would be, to look at um, the individual classes called commodities, and you can do an index tracking fund on that if you lack sophistication to pick an individual company, or even an individual sector. Let me give you an example. If, if you think you like cement and you're not sure about steel and copper, you can get an index that will combine all three in a basic construction commodities index. So these indexes are quite flexible. So the two characteristics, number one, how sophisticated are you as an investor? And the second one, which is even as equally important, how much time are you willing to put into this? If you're not willing to put the time in that it takes to monitor your investments quite closely, then you're better off with a, a tracking fund that 
will consolidate its look-see at each of these companies and will monitor the underlying participation of those companies in the portfolio more closely than you will. Okay, very good. Uh, what about real estate market? What, what's your thoughts on well, that? Um, right now, the real estate market in some parts, of, well, most parts of the United States has bottomed up, and that's going to continue to be the case, and you're going to see a, a slow uh, but steady rebuilding. I, I, I find it fascinating that um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have been, as you know, gushing money into the housing market. Uh, I see that the um, uh, FHA is now going to get into it in a bigger way, obviously stimulated by the Obama administration to do so. So right now, I think if you live in an area uh, outside of the major metros like California and Florida and New York, where you can buy a home for under $500,000, four fifty, whatever, and you qualify for Freddie or Fannie, or FHA financing, uh, you're going to get the loan, and you're going to be a happy camper and buy the house because you want shelter to live in, not because you want to flip it. To those people who overpaid at the height of the market and thought, okay, well, I'll overpay for a few years, and then I'll flip it and make a big profit, and they gambled, if I were those people, I'd say, you know what, just if you, if you can afford it and you have, to cut, you have to tighten your belt for a few years, just stay there. After all, it's where you live. It's not a gambling casino. So if I were you and you can afford to keep your mortgage up, did you lose money in your house purchase? Sure. But if you don't sell it, you won't see the loss. What you'll see is the pain every month as you pay the mortgage. And if it's a mortgage you can afford and you don't have to move your kids from the schools they're in and you don't have to go through the headache I just did of selling one house and buying another, and boy, it's a complete, it's a, boy, what a drain on my economic activity, it's better off just to stay where you are and ride it out. Now, in my case, it wasn't true for other reasons, but I'm just saying that the 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 – Likelihood is if you're happy where you are, living where you are, stay where you are and ride it out. If you can't, of course, it raises other issues. But the housing market in some areas, I mentioned Las Vegas, parts of Los Angeles, certainly parts of Orange County, uh, significant parts of the Inland Empire of California, huge sections, if not all of Florida, are, are, are still upside down, and they're going to stay that way for a long time. I mean, Detroit is not coming back tomorrow, although hiring's up in Michigan. So there are places, pockets of continuing turmoil where housing prices will probably continue to go down there are other prices uh, for example I, i'm calling to uh, talking to you today from santa barbara california where the housing market has stabilized and started going up again so is it going to go up rapidly i sort of doubt it but it isn't it's, it's no longer plummeting and it's going sideways or slightly up at this point so those are the general thoughts on housing if you'd want some specific information about your specific housing market or any specific information about your particular economic situation, uh, let the Academy know, and you can arrange a private consultation, and we'll look at exactly your variables, your mortgage, and all that sort of thing, and we'll help you come to some rational uh, assessment of what your situation is like. Oh, very good. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the dollar and currency in general. Where where do you think the dollar is headed relative, particularly to the euro, as our most common benchmark? Um, what's going on? <coughs> well, the... <coughs> The euro, one second. The euro, um, that was not a reaction to the euro. That was just a a swig of water that went the wrong way. Uh, The euro is going to continue to be somewhat hobbled over time, but I doubt it will be this low three, four months from today. I think that... um, I think the euro will regain some of its strength once everybody knows what Europe's really going to do. And if they came up with that fundamental change to the European Monetary Union, which I think they're going to have to. 
And by the way, um, I started talking about this recently. Paul Krugman wrote a really good little article on this just the other day where he basically said the same thing. So I, I'm always, I always feel good when I'm in the same company with Paul Krugman. So I think the euro, when they solve that fundamental issue, will go up against the dollar. Till they do, it's going to languish, go a little sideways, a little bit up because it got slammed too far down. But generally speaking, uh, whenever people get scared, they take safety in the dollar, and that artificially causes the dollar to rise in value. The dollar, in my estimation, is overvalued right now. And if you want to compare it against the Chinese yuan, or the renminbi as it's sometimes called, I'm going to say that the the American dollar will fall at least 10%, certainly 5 to 10%, let's be conservative, 5 to 10% against the Chinese yuan or the renminbi within the next 90 days. Um, which means that on a so what, what we buy from China will get to be five to ten percent more expensive. Uh, I think that re, revaluation is coming because the Chinese see it's in their interest. I don't think anybody's got to talk about it. I think it's going to happen on its own initiative. And by the way, when it happens, that won't be the last one you see. Uh, that might be the most dramatic one, but it won't be the last one. So China, is, for its own reasons, now understands to build a domestic consumption economy. It needs to let the yuan or the renminbi rise a bit. And so against that currency, I think the dollar will uh, will drop. As against the Canadian dollar, I think the Canadian dollar is very, very strong. If anything, ledge up another penny or two. It's around 95, 96 cents to the dollar now. Um, we've been strong supporters of the Canadian dollar for about 18 months because their banking system never went through the crisis ours did for a whole bunch of good reasons having to do with how they're regulated, what they're allowed to lend on. In fact, none of them were playing in the derivatives markets. Uh, I think there are certain things that America could do to underscore and strengthen its economy. Financial reform is one of them. We'll talk about that in a second. But the other issue really is um, how people can see the the um, the dollar, for example, faring against Australian currency, Brazilian reals, uh, other currencies. Singapore is, looks like it's going to continue to strengthen. So there's other currencies in the world besides the euro. And it's just that the euro's out of balance at this point, and the dollar is being treated more like it's a safety valve. Uh, I think that'll go away in a month or two, and you'll see the dollar continuing to creep up, uh, creep down rather. So I, I see mm, some parity going on for a while. The euro should go up a little bit, but the real damage to the dollar will come from other currency evaluations, other other currencies relative to the dollar, not from the euro's relative value to the dollar. Well, thank you. Uh, again, as a reminder, if someone is on the line already and you want to place a question. Uh, hit the number one, and if you're not and you're on the computer, you can dial in 347-989-8946. We'd also like to hear from some of you um, whether or not you followed any of these ideas and and if you had success stories or even things that didn't work. Uh, We always appreciate getting feedback on these topics. Uh, With that, Renal, let's move on to our second topic, which is where we started earlier about financial reform and how that will affect Wall Street, individual investors, and institutional investors such as pension funds. Where do you begin with this topic? With Wall Street? Well, I mean, are you talking about the reform issue, or are you talking about... The whole reform issue, yeah. Yeah, okay, well, Howard, I mean, as we've said on this program before, if the United States government does not pass financial reform, there is a crisis coming in the next 24, 36 months, 60 at the outside, which will make the last one look like a tea party. So unless people want to start eating uh, out of cans of the can of beans in their hands and, and, and seeing complete financial chaos, they must push on their on their on their elected officials very hard right now. I mean, even Chuck Grassley came out in favor of the Franken Amendment, uh, which is going to basically take this gambling instrument called 
buy the rating you want from Moody's for a fee and slap it on a piece of crappy bond indebtedness, chop it up and resell it as a derivative. And the Franken Amendment is going to basically make it impossible for, for Moody's to do that anymore because the government would be in a position to pick the appropriate rating agency for a particular instrument. Now, that, that form of regulation, which would have thought to have been radical a year ago, uh, with someone like Chuck Grassley signing on to it, along with like, 16 other Republican senators, shows you that on an election year, people got the message that we have been had by Wall Street. And it's our job now as a, as a democracy, if we forget that, if we go to sleep while a couple of million dollars a day, and it's seriously, it's more than a couple of million dollars a day is being spent lobbying the Congress not to reform Wall Street. If we let that happen on our watch, we will deserve the economic destruction that will follow as certainly as night doth follow day. So my, my goal would be to get people to start paying attention to what's in the paper, start pushing for financial reform. I started to mention, for example, the Volcker approach. We used to have a thing in this country called the Glass-Steagall Act that separated banks taking deposits from banks taking risks. Um, we need that Volcker approach back, which is basically a resuscitating portion of the Glass-Steagall Act. That worked from 1930s on to the present time. The fact that we got rid of it is crazy. We need to be able to regulate derivatives. I was so excited. The Securities and Exchange Commission, by a 5-0 vote this last week, this week, decided to regulate how auto loans, student loans, and home loans can be packaged, chopped up, and sold in the derivative market. And the SEC specifically in a 670-page proposal is saying, hey, you know what? We're going to force you to tell what's behind all that stuff. We're going to force you to keep it updated. This is like standard disclosure stuff, which you should do for any kind of security. We're going to tell you that you've got to keep 5% on your own books so you've got some skin in the game. If you start passing crap along, you'll get caught. So this is the, the, the SEC, which if you'll notice, if you recall, we wrote an article in, in 2008. One of the points that we said is there's, there's existing governmental authority to do a whole lot of re-regulation if we just wake up and do it. The FDIC can help here. The SEC can help here. And the Fed, who was asleep at the switch the entire time, has to help here. By the way, I am delighted that the first, uh, first amendment passed in modern history, passed with not one single no vote through the United States Senate, and the sponsor of that amendment was none other than Bernie Sanders, who most people call a socialist. Now, what's amazing is Bernie Sanders had a very simple problem. When he called Bernanke in front of his committee to testify, the banking committee, Bernanke refused to disclose who received all the trillions of dollars from the Fed. Sanders was shocked. How could a federal government, quasi-government agency, refuse to tell the government who they gave the money to? And so Sanders put together an amendment, which is now going to audit the Fed for the first time in history to find out what the heck those people are doing, who got greased, who had a conflict of interest, why are they refusing to talk about it? And what reforms need to be taken in order for the Fed to get straightened out? Clearly, we let the Fed run too long and automatic. As people who've been reading our information here at the Academy for a number of years know, we were never fans of Greenspan. We thought he got it wrong. He finally admitted it. But I'll tell you, for many, many years, we were a lone voice in the wilderness on that one. So from my point of view, financial regulation reform, the industry reform, Wall Street reform, banking reform, essential or we will have a crisis that will exceed the one we just came through and, frankly, will exceed the Great Depression. Are there any specific reform bills you want to talk about or specific proposals you think, um, if you were just to pick yourself, what are the most important things that need to be recontrolled? Well, the biggest thing has, has so far 
nobody's willing to touch. The big thing is there should not have been an exemption that Larry Summers talked Bill Clinton into when Bill Clinton was otherwise occupied with the Lewinsky matter um, and, you know, fighting for his political life. Summers, you know, squirreled through this thing that Bill did not, Clinton did not understand, where he exempted derivatives from regulation. It is without a doubt the number one white elephant in the living room that you must address. There is no conceivable way that these instruments are not securities. And I say that as, although I do not practice law currently, I was a securities lawyer in my younger day. And I must tell you, there is no, no securities lawyer in the land would say that derivatives are not securities. So without an exemption, they would be treated like any other security, which they should be. Now, um, that exemption uh, basically says they don't have to be registered, which is what the 33 Act requires, nor do they have to have honest information associated with them, which is the 34 Act. And so this can happen in the dark and did. And what, what people are upset about with Goldman Sachs, and by the way, I don't think people are anywhere near enough upset with Goldman Sachs. And they're not upset for enough of the right reasons. I mean, what Goldman Sachs has been doing for 100 years to this country is, is more than the subject of Matt Taibbi's article in Rolling Stone. It's, it's worth several volumes of, 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 of muckraking uh, information. But putting that aside for a moment, what has gotten Goldman Sachs in trouble is they were double-dealing their own clients, pure and simple. And, and the best you can say for Goldman is that they technically may not have violated the law because the underlying derivatives that they were doing this with aren't, quote, regulated. I would argue that the fiduciary duty of Goldman to its clients should give rise automatically under existing law to a standard of care at least equal to what you would tell a stranger if you were selling them an instrument. For Goldman Sachs to take the position that our people are so smart, we don't have to tell them what they need to know and they can still figure it out, that is totally balderdash. So from my point of view, Goldman is outrageously conducting itself, and that's a classic example of why you've got to get these derivatives up into the light. That could not have happened if, der if derivatives were disclosed. So my goal, and I know that no one in government in the Obama administration currently supports this that I'm aware of, my goal would be to say every derivative instrument created from today forward must meet the 34 Act for disclosure at a minimum, meaning you would have to supply information associated with the sale of security like you do for every other security. You can't just go put a pig in a poke and say, trust me. Well, and you could leave the derivatives that are out there you, you, are a different issue. Now, one last point, and I'm done, Howard. When we crashed this market with derivatives, we had $650 trillion. Remember, the global economy as a whole was only $60 trillion. So it's 10 times more derivatives were floating than there was money in the world or, or economic activity in the world. Today, after the crash, we're well over $725 trillion in derivatives, meaning we've created another $75 trillion of these same toxic gambling instruments in order for the banks to make horrific profits, which is what they're doing, and in order for them to avoid lending money to Main Street. So it's all tied together. There are a number of us, myself included, who often look back at 2008 and realize, yes, there were fundamental things wrong with the economy that began falling apart and collapsing, but that the real panic itself occurred when the institutional investment advisors simply did not know what was going on in the credit default swap market because it's an invisible, non-public market. Now, granted, these instruments are out there, but the fact that nobody knew the extent to which, for example, a GE or Lehman, when it, before it went down, or any of these other firms, 
was involved in trading that debt or holding that debt, that lack of transparency seems to be a major, major issue on top of the existence of these items themselves. Yeah, and by the way, Howard, take Lehman. You mentioned Lehman? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I think they broke current law setting up a British subsidiary to trade month-end contracts, meaning to, to beef up something by the 30th of the month and then unload it the first of the next month, okay? Mm-hmm. They clearly did that. We all know that's what they did. They did it to hide their exposure. Well, <clears throat> even though that's against current law, in my humble opinion, there's no way you could have even had that attempted if derivatives were, were in the clear. If they were, if, if there was, you know, the best way to cure an infection, and derivatives are an infection. Get the thing, do not mistake it. Derivatives are an infection. Anybody who thinks they're simple insurance contracts is either lying or doesn't understand the situation. So you got this infection. What do you do? You have, the, the way to cure infection is, is expose it to the light and to air. That's what kills infection. And, and light and air, in this case, is disclosure. You have to have disclosure. So you're and, 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 some form of a public, publicly visible market. Some... Well, yeah, I think you need – that's the clearinghouse argument. Yes, I think you need clearinghouses as well. We have one right now in, in, in Switzerland that does a pretty good job of trying to track the damage. But look, Howard, if you and I and ten people sat around in a circle, and I put a bunch of – I put three marbles in a bag, okay, and I charged you a penny and I handed it to you, and you charged the person next to you, Two pennies, and they hand it to the next person. They charge three pennies, and then four pennies, and then five. And it comes back to me, it's now about ten pennies. I go, sure, I charge you 11 pennies, and it keeps going around the circle. At some point, Howard, one of us is going to get smart and go, wait a minute, nothing new one in the bag. How come the price keeps going up? Right. Okay. 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 I do have a couple of call-in questions I'd like sure. to go to. The Please. first one is from the area code 650, and the last four digits are 6,000, six I believe. Hold on, I'm going to open your lineup, and we'll hear your question. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Again, the call in is from area code 650, and the last four digits of the phone number is number 6000. Do you have a question? Yes. <clears throat> yeah, George McCown here. Hello, Hi. George. Hi. Uh, what's not clear from this discussion to me is, are derivatives going to be regulated in this new legislation? It appears that they are not directly being tackled as yet, George. Uh, I'm still hopeful that that the administration will push for derivative regulation. Uh, what is clear is that the SEC – did you follow what the SEC did a couple yeah. days ago? Yeah. Okay, what's clear is that the SEC is putting some restraints on how derivatives can be issued and for how much when the underlying asset is a student loan, a home loan, or an automobile loan. So given that those three represent a significant uh, component of the raw material of derivatives contracts, you can, you can say that that portion of the market looks like it may get cleaned up. But if I had to pick a percentage, George, I don't think that tackles anywhere near a third of the market. Do you? No. And what you said was if we don't regulate derivatives, we're going to have an economic depression <clears throat> worse than what we've been through. And in so, three to five years, yeah, at the outside. What I'm, I'm asking myself the question, now what? Now what? Well, I think the, the now what is, and, and you're a sophisticated investor, I, I think we, no matter what our political affiliations are, no matter what parties we belong to or don't, it's really time to get our elected representatives to realize that the reason conservative Republicans like Bob Bennett are being kicked out of office and uh, and Democrats in, 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 in Massachusetts are being kicked out of office. 
The reason that's happening is because the Congress has been unwilling to do its job. And clearly its job is when a crisis of this enormity erupts, it's to say, okay, whatever the normal you know, business as usual was with the lobbyists, we've got to look out for the American people now. The American people cannot have another loop-to-loop like the one we just went through. What caused that loop-to-loop? How do we fix it? I mean, George, did you believe that one trader with a fat finger brought the New York Stock Exchange down by 1,000 points? Is that, in fact, what they think happened? No, that's what they said the first three days, and they've now said that didn't happen. But, I mean, but, did it, I believe it? No. Of course not. No one, no one plausible would. I thought what was interesting was the speed with which they put that story out. They put it out within seconds after the crash happened. So somebody's very nervous about the fragility of the trading system. You know that fragility, and you know the fragility of program trading. So now I'll link two things together we covered in this call. One, the size of the derivatives market, and two, program trading. When you put these together, what it says is there's a huge instability in the market. I, I, I referred at the beginning of this call. There's a, there's, a, there's a minority of people right now who are saying, hey, if you can get out of the money market, take your money and walk because it's too instable for the little guy to play in. And I think there's an element of truth to that. I don't think it, it, it figures for the next 12 months, but I think beyond that it certainly figures. So this is a time, you know, that famous line, we, we no longer have time for, what is it, um, summer, summer patriots. Uh, Sunshine Patriots, remember that one? Yeah. It's like if we're gonna if we're gonna have a country that works again, and is going to be safe for us to hand to our children and our grandchildren, we have got to reform the financial sector. And right now, as you know, that's what's going on in, in, on the Capitol. Okay, Ronaldo, we have another call coming in. I'm gonna, George, I'm going to mute your line now. Uh, this one George, is very. Okay. George, I think you're back in New York. I, I couldn't get back to you yesterday, George. I'm going to give you try and give you a call on your cell later today. Okay. The second call is coming in from area code 455, and the last two digits of the phone number are 0286. You are now on the line. Go ahead with your question. Hello. 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 This is uh, Yit uh, from Denmark. Hello, Yit. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. And how are you? Good. Oh, good. That's good to hear. Uh, Renato, I just ask you to uh, answer me this question about the euro. Uh, I don't have any euro in cash, you know. I don't speculate in, in, in you know, in valuta. But I have some uh, companies which is uh, showed in, in uh, which, which show themselves in, in euro, you know. Uh, for instance, um, uh, for instance, Siemens. Yes. Uh, and uh, and also uh, other uh, companies, Fortum and so on, in in the euro dollar in BMD. You know, uh, so so should I sell them and buy uh, the U.S. dollar uh, instead, or what do you recommend? Uh, well, not necessarily. And, and and you know, it's funny. We had this conversation two weeks ago privately That's when right. I was talking about leaving the euro. Remember? Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess you still have it. Well, see, a company like Siemens actually will take a tremendous amount of money back from the United States in the terms of profits, because Siemens is heavily invested in the U.S., yeah. heavily invested in the green sector section of the U.S. So when it brings those, what's called repatriates, those dollar profits back into euros, they actually will get an advantage in, this, in, 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 in the fact that the euro is lower against the dollar. So uh-huh. I would say to you, and this is generally true for anyone who is not a um, who does not perceive themselves to be a day trader. Mm-hmm. I would say ride out a good company. If you think that Siemens is a good company overall, 
and you know that it's yes. diversified in terms of where its income comes from. That is to say, it's, yeah. it, it has a tremendous amount of income from outside of Europe. Mm-hmm. Then I would say let it be and make your decision on whether or not you've invested in a good company. Don't try to figure out if you can beat the euro-dollar swing for a month and then have to reverse it. For one thing, it'll save you having to pay commissions. And for another, it will rebalance itself one way or the other. If, if Siemens cannot make enough money in the euro land, then what they'll do is they'll continue to expand their operations, as they've done the last 10, 15 years, in non-euro countries. And mm-hmm. that will give them an ability to generate non-euro-denominated profits. Uh, yeah. The bigger problem for someone like you, Jake, I know you, you live in Scandinavia, is yes. how to help the European community understand this fundamental flaw they have in the European Union, which you and I yeah. were talking about. Uh, not long said ago. We discussed it. Yes, we discussed it the other day. It's, it's Isn't it funny? We were discussing it two weeks ago, and then it happened. It went boom. Yeah. You're right. Isn't that amazing? It's a very amazing thing. The reason I mention that, Howard, is because we, we had this conversation, Jet and I, and um, I was saying why it was going to happen, and then it happened. And the caveat that, in general, uh, currencies are extremely volatile when you look at all the different asset classes, and that a single political incident anywhere in the world can rapidly spin the relative values of currencies uh, way beyond the control of normal economic uh, well, parameters. And well, that's that is why, very true. Yeah. That's and very that's true. But certain be, fu- I'm go, sorry, ahead. go ahead, Brian. No, just that's why certain fundamentals, though. I mean, you could see this Greek thing coming from a mile away. I can tell you what's you know what's what's going on in Spain and Portugal, and I can tell you what's going on in Italy, which we haven't even raised yet. And these countries, which are now referred to as pigs, right? Portugal, uh, Portugal, Italy. Ireland. No, uh, Port- no, no, it's Portugal, Italy. Greece and Spain are the ones. Ireland's not in that group anymore. So, so these countries have predictable problems. The fundamentals are weak. You can see where the strain is. You can see that no one was addressing the real problem. You can see that the Euros would have the Europeans had no choice but to bail them out with liquidity. But providing liquidity doesn't solve the underlying problem. All it does is fund the, the differential to buy you some time to solve the underlying problem. And that's really what, what I was saying to Jed about two weeks ago. That's what Krugman wrote two days ago, and that's what I'm reiterating on this call. I, I want While we still have time, I want to say one other thing, uh, not only for Jed's benefit, for everybody else. There is a really thoughtful series of lectures that is now available online if you go to financialtimesft.com and look up the Soros, S-O-R-O-S, the Soros Lectures. Uh, Soros gave a series of lectures at the Central European University, and although I do not agree with everything he said in it, I, there, there are parts of what he said I actually disagree with, but on the whole, it is the most thoughtful, articulate statement I know of today on the breadth of the global economy and why it's essential for financial reform to occur and what the risks we are that we're playing with and how we must address them now. So nothing I said in this call in that regard would disagree with George Soros, and George Soros is as some of you know, the most sophisticated currency speculator in the world. He's also one of the leading hedge fund owner and operators in the world. This guy made his billions by being smart on these exact issues. It would do everybody well to look at those lectures. Ronaldo, we're coming down to the last few minutes of the show. And first, I want to ask if there's any other questions out there that uh, people would like to have answered. Please, again, hit number one on your keypad, and we'll cue you in. Uh, and if not, Ronaldo, that's uh, time to wrap up. And any last-minute thoughts? Well, I just first of all, I'm glad for everybody who, who was there today and, and, and participated in the show. 
Uh, as you can see, I get very excited when I start talking about financial reform and, and, and recommending people like George Soros. Um, so for, for those of you who are new to the show, just know that our job here is to help you protect your nest egg and grow it in a prudent but relatively risk, less risky way. If I thought I could help you grow your portfolio by, which I think we can, 10% a year indefinitely, I would be a very happy person because then there would be just that many more of you who would be able to retire one day. There would be that many more of you who would be able to put your kids through college, that many more of you that would be able to invest in a home improvement or the like. So our goal in this is not to teach people how to shoot the moon and become market mavens. Our goal in this is to teach people the tools to protect themselves, to be wise investors, not, not gamblers, wise investors, and to be able to see the fundamental long-term trends and profit from them as only usually the wealthy can. Our job is to help you know what they know and give you the opportunity to participate. So thank you for tuning in. Very good. And as a reminder, next week we are going to deal with uh, fundamental concepts about investing, how you look at what assets you have, how investing fits into the total financial picture of your life, and how you should begin to frame your investments in terms of short, middle, and long-term investments and why you need to do that um, and how you accomplish it. Yeah, and you know, on that subject, Howard, people might want to not only tune in for that one, but record that one. And if you can't figure out a way to do that, get a copy from the Academy after it's over, because that's going to be like a little primer. What Howard and I decided to do was to go through enough basic concepts in a step-by-step fashion that you'll have a better set of tools when we talk about specific economic activities. You'll have the tools to know how those economic macro trends relate to your micro portfolio or what you'd like to have in your portfolio. Well, again, Ronaldo, thank you for today's call. And with that, we're going to conclude. There are no further questions out there. And I thank all of our listeners for dialing in today, and uh, we'll catch you next month. Thank you, Howard. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.